Well, great. Well, good morning. My name is Jeeves. Um, I am one of the elders here. I have the privilege and joy of overseeing the North 18's ministry. And I'll be honest with you, what I'm going to preach about today, I feel that God, God has already spoken through different words. Dave and Kate kind of knew the topic I was preaching on. But I'm saying that explicitly, not because it's kind of been engineered to talk about it, but because some of the words that were brought genuinely fit so within what I'm about to say which is really helpful for a preacher, to be honest with you, because it means that what he's about to say has already been covered. So I'm really just revising the words that have been brought. It also means that the Holy Spirit clearly wants some people to hear it. Clearly. And so I'm just going to pray before we kind of dive into it to allow the Holy Spirit really to kind of gently comb his way through some of our hearts. That whatever he wants to pull out, may he do it with love and grace. But may you hear it. May we hear what God wants us to hear in that way. Is that all right? Yeah, fine. Okay. I was going to do it anyway, but still. Let me pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful that you would meet with us. I'm so grateful, Holy Spirit, that you are here. And you're speaking to us. And it's such a blessed joy that we get to enjoy you right now. Heavenly Father, whatever you're wanting to speak and say, I pray that you would do it with love and grace. I pray, O oh kind God, may you be here. As we look at your word, Father, whatever you're wanting to point out, whatever you're wanting to call out, may you do that well. And may we respond. Thank you, Jesus, for what you're about to do. And I pray, O oh God, come and be with us. In your holy name, amen. Amen. Great, we are going to continue our journey on the Greater Story series. Did you know there's a book after Genesis? Wow, I didn't know either. We've been four months in that book, and now we're suddenly in a new book. It's wonderful. And by the way, we're about to sprint for the rest, so we can get ready to run at pace. And I think what's been amazing by us moving into Exodus is we get to see this continued main storyline. So we head into Exodus. If you didn't know, the book of Exodus is called that exodus for, due to the israelites leaving egypt fun fact for the scholars among us uh, in the torah it's called shemot which means names due to the first kind of few words that are written in this book there you go throw away comment enjoy that uh, we are introduced to a really important character if I'm honest, if I was to kind of take the Old Testament people and put them on Mount Rushmore, like kind of the, the key people faces on this, I would have probably put Adam, then Abraham, and this guy is next, I would say. And his name is Moses. You probably have heard of Moses either through old folk gospel songs, through films or theater productions. And the first half of the story of Moses is a classic Sunday school teaching and an RE material used in education. However, the book of Exodus is full of rich content that goes beyond just the Red Sea, goes way beyond that, and has real significance for us to understand and grapple with. It, it kind of is a book that you really want to sink your teeth into based on some of the things that are said. But like I said, we're only looking at the main storyline, so please, as kind of over the last few weeks we've really said, I urge you, I implore you, please read it in your own time. It's really important we dive into scripture because I guarantee you we're only going to be able to sprint in the mornings. In fact, we're only looking at three chapters today. We're looking at Exodus 1 to 3. But in that itself, there's so much. I'm not going to be able to cover it all. And so I really want to ask you, please do read this. 
Read it at home. One chapter a day is easy enough just to allow yourself to comb through Scripture, to feed yourself, not just only being fed from our sprinting in the morning. So Exodus 1 to 3. If you want to turn to it, that would be great. I'm going to be putting up verses as I kind of pull it out behind me as well. Reading from the ESV. Let's start. Okay, Exodus 1, 1 to 7. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Azakshar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died when with and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Okay, great. At the beginning of Exodus, we kind of have a callback to what God promised Abraham of a land to be filled and a land to be fruitful back in the covenant kind of chapter in Genesis 15. This covenant also gives us a hint of what is to come. As we have in Genesis 15, a reference of the length of time, 400 years, is written in Genesis 15, but also about the difficulty that they're going to have to serve others during that time, but the promise of what is to come after that time as well. In a sense, at the beginning and in the covenant, at the beginning of Exodus and in the covenant, God is saying, I have a great purpose more than just a geographical location. Through hardness, um, and through difficulty, you will have to serve others. But my covenant will be fulfilled in my perfect planning. So guess what? We head into verse 8, 400 years later, roughly. We have now this Pharaoh, this new Pharaoh, that sees all the Israelites mixing with the Egyptians and see that the Israelites have grown to be a great number. He sees this and forgets history. He forgets how Joseph helped, how a Hebrew helped Egypt. He forgets the agreement of the Israelites joining and going to Egypt and how there was a real kind of peace treaty, how they were welcomed in in that way. Pharaoh only sees the people and feels threatened against them. Why? Well, two main reasons that we can see here. One, because of the sheer number and if the number was swayed in favor of joining the Hittites, which were Egypt's enemy at that time, it would have been a massive problem for them. But two, because the ancient Egyptian culture, there was a proud sense of racial superiority towards all other people. So by this increase, an action needs to be done to ensure that the ancient Egyptians were honored more than others. The issue is... The decision that was made was full of racial prejudice and evil as Pharaoh kind of decides to enslave the Israelites. Your big, bad decision. Slavery is heartbreaking. And it's at the beginning of this story. An act done with ruthlessness combined with complete terror to misuse and abuse people where there is deep injustice against humanity. Yet, God's hand 
still bless the Israelites. And in between the verses that are not on the screen, it talks about the midwives kind of stood against Pharaoh, lied, a complete lie. You, you can read yourself. And God's hand was continuously over it. And as we read in verse 12, more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad. God sees the faith and continues to allow his plan to be seen, despite the suffering. A suffering and persecution can be like a great wave that comes upon a ship, a ship to kind of destroy it. But the ship catches the wave and just speeds along further on its way. We see this, by the way, again in Acts 8 with the early church where there was great persecution put on the early church. Martyrdom and death was happening. And the believers were spread, kind of across the globe, scattered in fear. And yet, if you look at the history of the church, that was the moment that the gospel starts to spread out across the globe, where the gospel moves to India and Africa and the rest of Asia. That's the moment where the gospel pours out. Suffering persecution, yet God's hand and plan is continuously in it. The worst of persecution comes against God's plan in this story to multiply the children of Israel, the more God Make sure his plan succeeds. It's a wonderful example of God's power and goodness. Pharaoh says less, God says more. Pharaoh says stop, God says go. It's incredible. But in verse 22, we have this harrowing verse from Pharaoh where he decides to incite a horrific genocide to throw every male child to be born into the Nile, to either drown or to be eaten by the animals within it, purely to cull out an entire generation over the coming years. It's sad. It's sad to say that this injustice did not just remain in ancient Egypt, but happened in humanity time and time again, and happens today, sadly in different forms. We need to stand up against this injustice and fight for the ones who cannot or do not have a voice in whatever capacity and age they are. Okay, we continue. Chapter 2. We suddenly have, out of this kind of few years of this genocide happening, says that a baby was born we don't know his name yet and his parents decide to hide him then his mother after three months to the point where the baby can't be hidden anymore they grow so it's a bit hard to kind of keep them hidden came up with a tactical solution to do what was instructed but protect the baby first she did throw the baby into the Nile but she made sure to prepare the baby first we're told in verse 3, as you can see, she made a, a basket out of bulrushes, daubed in bitumen and pitch. Bulrushes, in some translation, uses papyrus basket. It's kind of type of wood. We get a similar reference, by the way, actually the only reference to this, which is ex- described in the same way as in Genesis 6 with Noah's Ark. It's the same thing. It was made out of this kind of wood covered in bitumen and pitch. And in the same way of Noah's Ark, this basket, the Ark, was thrown into water, floated through the waters to allow God's provision to be carried along 
the waters. What a trend. Helpful. Says that his sister Miriam, we don't know her name at this moment in the story, but sister Miriam watches over him. And by God's grace, in this deep time of pain, Pharaoh's daughter sees this basket and shows pity to want to raise him. By the way, this story gets even more remarkable when you look at what happens next. Pharaoh's daughter wants someone to help raise and wean the baby. Miriam, who's been watching, kind of steps out and goes, do you want to get a nurse? She goes, yeah, get a nurse. Goes and gets the baby's mum, saying, yeah, there you go, she's a nurse, that'll work out. So the baby goes back to be with the mother under the authority of those in the palace to raise up the boy. It's kind of the moment as well where he's then taught about his Hebrew heritage. He kind of knows about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when the time is right, he then moves back into the temple. And he's kind of taught, well, palace, sorry. He's then taught about the highly educational standards that the ancient Egyptians had as well. So you've got like a person primed already, knowing his Hebrew heritage, and well-educated as well. And we find out his name is Moses. Or Moshe means to pull, to draw out. His name is really significant if you didn't know. Because though it's describing what's just happened to him with his first exodus, it's a name also prophesying what God is about to do through him as well. Soon, Israel will be brought down to the water of the Red Sea and will be brought safely out of the of the other side, just like Moses was brought down to the river Nile and taken out of the other side. Slight side point that I just want to kind of call out. There is a pattern emerging throughout the Bible that God's merciful hand is at work in redeeming people. He is a redeemer. Through pain and battle, God shows his grace through redemption. It's interesting as well, if you look at the patterns in the Bible, that redemption that God does often starts with women. Eve with her seed, Tamar with Judah, Rahab with Joshua, Ruth with King David, Hannah with Samuel, Esther with saving the Jews, Elizabeth with John the Baptist, Mary with Jesus, Mary Magdalene with Easter Sunday. And here we have midwives and mother and Miriam all being used as a way to kind of enable the redemption and saving of Moses. God regularly uses women at the beginning of the redemption story, even if the redeemer is a boy. I think there's really two interesting things that we can call out from this. Number one, because the Christian story is about affirming all people, men and women, as part of his tactical plan. I think the second thing as well that we can pull out due to the culture that we read this in is that redemption was brought from people who would have been seen in that culture as weak and powerless, like midwives and a baby, not strong and powerful. But God's salvation comes from this place to show his divine hand and that it's his power at work. Praise God. It's good. Okay, let's continue going through. Oh, I missed that slide. That's okay. Oh, no, I haven't. Oh, good, we're here. Good. 11 to 25. 
Moses has grown up and is around 40 years old. We kind of get that from Acts 7 where Stephen is talking to the Sanhedrin and he references when Moses was 40 years old, this is kind of what happened. So we kind of get that inference here, which by the way means a significant length of time has passed, 40 years. Remember the cultural difference and how Moses would have been grown up. Understanding the Hebrew background, understanding where he came from, and in a place where he was walking as part of the Egyptians. He would have walked regularly to see his oppressed people, his oppressed people, under the slavery from the Egyptians, and would have seen the injustice around him. And we read there comes a moment where he walks out, and sees, he says in, uh, I think in the NIV and other translation, it says that he saw them. In the ESV, he says, he looked upon their burdens. That's not just an image to kind of see someone and noticing them. That's seeing the pain and emotion behind what is going on. It's kind of feeling it. He looked at their burdens. And he sees in particular an Egyptian beating up one of his people. And in verse 12, we have this statement where it says, he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The language is fascinating to make you think this kind of look over the shoulder type mentality before a bad act is about to happen. Sometimes at home, I wait until Catherine is not visible. And I walk into the kitchen looking this way and that, and sneak my hand into the cupboard for a Harry bow. Until I'm caught by Judah going, Daddy? And I'm like, yep. And he then puts his hand out and goes, mine? And I'm like, okay, we're in it together, boy. This is it. Before Catherine comes in and catches us, and I'm like, oh no, we're out, okay. We've been caught, unlucky. And I start telling Judah, anyway, bad parenting. Okay, let's move on. Um, but it's kind of a similar concept. Can I just say, any moment where you're looking this way and that, you're not doing something godly, right? Like that's not, that's not really the behavior that happens there. And in this instant, though there were reasons to fight against the injustice, though Moses was fighting for what he believed was right and is right, Moses ended up taking into his own hands the actions completely against the just God who is the final judge. He tries to become the judge himself, but instead becomes the executioner in that way. Moses, we then have this moment where Moses is walking again, sees this argument. They say, well, you killed this Egyptian, Donnie, and he freaks out. Fear. He freaks out. Guilt. And he runs. He runs to Midian. He probably would have thought at that time he fumbled it. He was positioned in the best place, but he, he messed up. He's now got a new label over him, murderer. It's put upon him and he runs away to try and forget everything. And yet God perfectly places him exactly where he needs to be by putting Moses through his second exodus. Moses has come down from his throne, struck down an oppressor of his people, then went safely away into a land away from Pharaoh and others trying to kill him. This is going to happen in roughly 40 years time where he will come down from the mountains, strike down the oppressors with plagues, run from Pharaoh through the Red Sea into a safer land. Twice, twice God has put him through 
something similar to the big exodus to come that this book is named after. Preparing him through the circumstances that he's already been in. And God does this business still today. Maybe through going through difficulty or changes or loss or hardship. But it can happen whether you're young or you're old. God prepares us for putting us through circumstances that kind of echo what may be to come. God is kind in walking with us, helping journey us through all of that. So when the more challenging and dangerous calling occurs, we can draw from previous chiseling God moments to rely on to know he's prepared us for it. Or to say it better than I can, in Romans, 1, verse, uh, Romans 5, verse 1 to 5, Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. This is what it means. We glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Amen. Praise God. God prepares us for hope and salvation through tough suffering that we go through for his glory. For his glory. Let's continue. Kind of verse 15 at the end of this. Moses ran to Midian to avoid Egypt. And geographically, just so you know, it was kind of the only option. Because the other lands he could have, which was Canaan and Syria, were not options based on the political climate and agreement they had with Pharaoh. So he was kind of running to the only place he could to avoid it all. Moses has this moment where he saves the Midian priest's daughter, one of them who becomes his wife, from the shepherds whilst, they were still, whilst he was still in Egyptian clothing. He saves them and then gives them water in the desert. Moses then is brought into a community and is just content. He's just happy because he becomes a worker looking after sheep. He's in the desert, so isolated, and he's ready to forget everything that happened in Egypt. But yet, God doesn't. God doesn't forget. And just so you know, we're going to skip over verses 23 and 25 for now in chapter 2. We're going to come back to them at the end. So let's head into chapter 3. Are you keeping up? I told you we're walking. Well, we're sprinting, but hopefully we're still together. Chapter 3. Have this moment. Commentators believe, like I said, about 40 years had passed. So Moses is roughly 80. He's walking like he would normally do with his sheep up in mountains, up in fields. And suddenly, he kind of gets up to this mountain. We find out this is called Mount Sinai which if you know your Bible, real significant place that we find out later. And he sees up this lit up bush. It's just fiery bush. It's just on fire. And the bush is interesting, not for why we think. It's not interesting to Moses because it's on fire, which implies that in the desert he would have seen suddenly a random bush like up on fire. It's because it's not being burned up. There's no charcoal around it. It's not being consumed. The Hebrew word for this bush is called sene, 
which means thorny bush or bush with pricks and, or sticks. So the bush with thorns on it is not being consumed by the fires around it. When Moses looks and gives this bush his attention, suddenly then God speaks. It's as if God was waiting for Moses' full attention at that time. It says that the angel Lord appears and speaks to Moses. Just so you know, this is the name given to Jesus before his incarnation in the New Testament. God calls his name out twice. Moses! Moses! It's remarkable. This backslidden, forgotten murderer is called by the name, by the very God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Twice! Already showing the reaffirming of this man, the urgency of him calling his name twice to listen, and that God deems him to be that important to call him by name. A man that would have wanted to forget his name, forget his pain. God meets with him out of love and shows him a great spiritual encounter which shakes his very understanding of this God. Additionally, from this moment on, fire and the presence of God becomes very entwined. And we see that theme kind of throughout the rest of the Bible. God still does this today, by the way. He calls you by name, twice. There's urgency to hear his, his calling for you. And regardless of the place that you're at, even if it's tough and hard and you want to forget everything, God can meet with us and shake our very understanding of him. Philosopher and famous mathematician Blaise Pascal died in 6062. And when they inspected his often worn jacket, they found a paper sewn within the jacket of an encounter he had with God in 1654, which made him a Christian. And it just talked about the experience of God being like one word, fire. And the rest of this paper just basically describes um, great praises of joy, repentance, and redemption. When we meet with God, it is not just a casual event. There is redemption to be found there. There is the fire of God to be found there. God welcomes Moses in, but gives instruction to Moses in being in the presence of God. Keep a distance to show sheer depth and holiness, and take off your sandals off your feet to show humility when walled, kind of entering in. Like someone coming into a home, taking off your shoes, like you're welcomed into their presence, so come as you are. What's Moses' response? Hide his face, scared, afraid. Kind of similar to running away from Egypt, probably thinking, I am not worthy of being here. The labels I've got, the, the things I've done, this is not, I am not welcomed here. And yet God still welcomes him. He knows it all. He knows his past. He knows everything that he has done, everything that Moses has carried out, has thought, has felt. He knows it all and welcomes him in. And we come to verse 13 to 15, which is remarkable. And truthfully, we could spend probably weeks in this, and we're going to spend five minutes. So bear with me. Moses says, you are telling me to go and I have no idea how to do it or what name I'm doing this in. My name's not good enough. What's your name? 
God breaks down his name in three statements in verse 14 to 15. He first starts by saying, say, uh, God said to Moses, I am who I am. God hasn't revealed his name yet. But he's saying, before I even tell you my name, before we even get there, before you measure me up against any other God that you might have seen in Egypt, before you even wonder if I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, know I am who I am. Or in some translations, I will be what I will be. It's talking about his being, that he is the absolute. He's the eternal being. He's the first, the foundational. He's the one of infinite importance. Then he says, I am has sent me to you. He kind of, again, not reveals his name, but he links his name to his being. In a sense, he's saying, the one who is the absolute is sending you. Then he says in verse 15, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. He reveals his name. Kind of the closest translation we've got in this in Hebrew is Y-H-Y-H, or pronounced Yahweh. That's why in your Bibles, when you have the Lord referenced in this way, it's in capitals, out of reverence, and his name. Yahweh is built upon the word I am, used in short as Yah, like in the word hallelujah, which means praise Yahweh, reminding that God is the absolute. Pious Jews later, out of reference, didn't want to say this name, so took out the vowels and instead used the word Adonai as the word for Lord. When you take the vowels from Adonai, you take the consonants from Yahweh, you map them together, you get the word Jehovah. By the way, I'm just saying this because I think it's really important you know where these names of God start coming from. That's why we say the word hallelujah. I wish we say it more because it's praising God in that way. It's where we say Jehovah Jireh, my provider, the Lord is my provider. That's where we get that from. What does this mean then? God's revealed his name. Okay, what does this mean? It means a lot. It means that God, this God, is the absolute, which means he has no beginning and no end. He was there before time began. He is the eternal. He is utterly independent. It means that he is uh, not a God dependent on other things or dependent on, on other gods. It means that those who are not him are dependent on that God. It means that he is constant. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He means that what he says is true, and he lives and accords, does everything according to what is true. It means that if he is the absolute being, he is the most important and the most valuable reality, and he is the most important and the most valuable person in the whole of the universe. It means he's the most worthy of our interest, worthy of all interest and attention and admiration and enjoyment of all realities, including everything within the universe. And if that is the case, everything in the universe relates to that God. And how it is, is dependent on the relationship that it is to that God. And Moses at the moment sees the absolute God. 
And this absolute God says, Moses, I'm going to use you to fill a promise I said 400, over 400 years ago to bring out my people and I'm going to use you to continue to move my people ahead. The absolute God then chooses to redeem this backslidden murderer for his glory. What? The absolute does the absolute. a moment when Moses is restored and we're not going to be able to look at the next chapter so please read it but Moses is gobsmacked he says oh God how could you use me how could you use someone like me or like Kate said earlier why, why me singing and yet God continues to say well I am using you because I've made you I'm using you because I've chosen you I'm using you because I've redeemed you that's why it's remarkable as I finish up, I just want to kind of pull out why is this so significant. And I think the verses in chapter 2, 23 to 25, really helps us land it well. It says, during those many days, the king of Egypt died. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God knew. God knows. He was about to work. He didn't forget, and he doesn't forget, as we've seen already in this series. He sees, and he knows. He knows his covenant, and he honors it. He's about to move them out of slavery and draw them into a safe place in his presence. And by the way, that's exactly what he does today. He's constant, which means he always does it. He sees us and knows us and knows all about us. In the midst of seeing us and knowing us, he draws us out of the place where we once were and draws us into the place of relationship with him. Where's the proof, I hear you ask? Well, the proof is thousands of years later and hundreds of pages later in the Bible by a man called the great I am called Jesus. Jesus is the greater Moses. He was saved as a baby from a genocidal king to bring freedom to not just the Israelites, but all people. He, would you believe it, was saved to move to Egypt through a tactical plan from a woman called Mary, not Miriam, but the names mean the same thing. He came down from his throne into a humble place to deliver his people. He grew up surrounded by his oppressors of his people that he was now going to save. He goes into the desert to fight for his people and gives living water to all who are thirsty. He was rejected by his own people that he was called to rule and judge over them. It goes further than that. He is the greater burning bush as though the thorns were upon his head when he was on the cross. He was not consumed by the fires of judgment and yet brings reconciliation to all who'd come to him. And because of him, we get to be drawn into the presence of God and enjoy him, not partially, but wholly forever. Hallelujah! Hallelujah. Praise God! He is the greater Moses. And we are called to be like the burning bush 
to be filled with the presence of God. So when others see us, they go, what a mystery it is, and be able to be filled with the presence of God themselves. Why? Because we can just be like Moses. We can just be like Moses. Having labels put upon us, broken, hurt, shameful, covered with fear, shackled by it. But Jesus meets us and restores us in that place. And he reconciles us and redeems us. Draws us out of a place of slavery, of sin, and draws us into the presence of God. If God can forgive and restore and redeem a murderer like Moses, how much more can he restore and redeem you? If he can forgive a murderer like Moses, a cheater like Jacob, an adulterer like David, a coward like Gideon, a people pleaser like Aaron, a denier like Peter, a prostitute like Rahab, an evil ruler like Manasseh, and a terrorist like Paul, how much more can he restore and redeem you today? Why don't we stand? Ban, can I just welcome you up? just feel there is a need to respond. I believe that we get to be welcomed into the close, intimate presence of God. Not standing afar from the burning bush, but being right in the inner courtroom of the temple and to be with his presence. And there's two calls here. One of them, we're going to sing a song and we're going to respond afterwards. I just want the Holy Spirit to kind of just do some work that we're going to in a bit pray for one another just for freedom, for labels to be taken away. That's what we're going to do in a bit. But first, I think there is a clear calling for those who have never given their lives to Jesus, who feel like they're kind of trapped in sin, they're, they're stuck in that place, to be brought out of that place and be brought into freedom, into the presence of God. And so before we sing a song, I'm just going to ask you if it's okay, just for you to close your eyes. I believe the Holy Spirit is just wanting to prompt some of us. And if you've never given your life to Jesus before, just want to give you a chance to kind of follow the words that I say, mean them with your whole heart as we do something just called repentance. Turning our lives from the old and turning our lives to Jesus. So you close your eyes. If you want to give your life to Jesus, just repeat the words that I'm saying now. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you love me. I know I have sinned and turned away from you, trying to do things in my own power. I'm sorry and I repent. Turning from my old ways, I choose to trust in you. Jesus, thank you for dying for me, for being a sacrifice for my sins. I choose to follow you. Holy Spirit, help me to live a life for you as a person with no other label than a redeemed child of God who is now alive in you forever. In your holy name, amen. Keep your eyes shut. If you prayed that prayer for the very first time to take a step of faith and boldness, can you raise your hand now? Thank you, Jesus. Praise you. Amazing. Well, if you pray that prayer, Ian or I or one of the elders would love to speak to you. What we're going to do now is we're going to just sing, just praying for the Holy Spirit, just to kind of comb through you 
And after this, we're going to have a kind of moment of responding by praying for one another in this way.